Welcome in to another episode of Home Field Advantage. Hope you're all having a great week or weekend, wherever and however you may be listening or watching us across our great country or our great land. My name is Will Highland. It is January 18th, 2024. Gotta get used to saying 2024, but I'm happy to have you in for this week's edition of the weekday program. Plenty to talk about in the NFL world. We'll get to that. Um, Then I have a parting Red Sox thought before we close out uh, the show. It's been a crazy week of football, uh, starting with Saturday, Sunday, and Monday night games. Uh, It was was wild. It was certainly wild. Um, No pun intended with it being wild card weekend. The one place I will look, though, as we look, take our final look in the rear view at wild card weekend is that my picks were uh, <laughs> were subpar, to say the least. Um, and not in a good way. Not like in golf, where you want to be subpar. I was, uh, I was not up to my usual, uh, my usual acumen when it comes to making NFL picks. In fact, 2022, I believe I was 5-1 and one in Wild Card Weekend. Last year, I was 4-2. and two. Um, I would have been 6-0 and oh in 2022 had I not had my heart get the better of me when I picked New England over Buffalo. But this year I was three and three. And the, you know, the first game was Texans and Browns. Cleveland, I don't think boarded the flight to Houston. Um, That was just not a great performance. Joe Flacco first ever time he lost a wild card game. Not just not a good performance by Cleveland in any phase. Houston did whatever they wanted to do. The next game we had was uh, was the night game with Kansas City and um, in Miami. I had that one correct. The weather played a huge factor, and Miami was never in that game. Uh, Harry Potter got exposed, and I don't think he's that good of a coach, to be quite honest. Uh, his team was flailing at the end of the year, and sure, they can beat up on the Patriots a lot, which they have during his tenure. But Tua in cold weather and that team in cold weather and that team up against a good team, um, we've seen it time and time again. We thought their signature win was against Dallas, but as we'll get to in a second, Dallas is also a pretender. All right, so then we get to Sunday's games. Now, originally it was going to be Bills and Steelers. Uh, That got moved to Monday. We'll get to that uh, in a second. So the first game of the week was Packers and um, Cowboys. And I had the Cowboys. I had the Cowboys at home. I didn't. I'm never. I've never been a believer in Jordan Love, um, but I think it's time I start to eat that prediction. Jordan Love had a great game, first ever playoff game, first ever road playoff game, and it's in Dallas with a team that has a ton of expectations. And Green Bay delivered, um, and beating they beat the Cowboys. A lot will be made of that game. It was not particularly close. Uh, I, I believe the final score was, if I'm not mistaken, 42 to 28, I believe, um, or 44 to 28, something like that in that in that range. Um, and it's going to probably cost Mike McCarthy his job. So th- that's what that's what the NFL is. It's a what have you done for me lately kind of league. And, I, you know, as I heard Dan Patrick say earlier this week, Mike McCarthy's been a guy that's been on the hot seat his whole career in Dallas. And I, I don't think that changes, especially losing to his former team at home in the wild card round. That's just not a recipe for success if you want to keep your job. Um, elsewhere in the league that day, we had the battle of 
the 2021 trade that had Goff and Stafford switch places in Detroit and uh, LA respectively. I was high on the Rams. That was another game I got wrong. Um, so I did, I did very poorly on Sunday. I, both games were, but I, I, I thought that the Rams were going to go into that game and look like the more experienced playoff team. There's still a ton of guys on that roster that were a part of the, uh, 2022 Super Bowl. What was that? 40, 50, 55, Super Bowl 55. I think that was. Sure, let's go with that. No, Super Bowl 56. Whatever, they won the Super Bowl in that game against Cincinnati, all right? So there's a lot of people, including Stafford, on the team from that win. And so I thought the Rams are going to be the team that you looked at with, you know, he- you know healthy Cooper Cup, relatively speaking. You know, Puka playing well. Um, their offense was really kicking on high uh, in high gear late in the year. And Stafford, you know, Stafford, I thought the moment he was going to rise to that moment, in fact, it was Goff who rose who rose to the occasion, and and I think the Lions, even though there was some uh, ticky tack things in that game and whatnot, um, in the fact that it was a one point game, I still think the Lions, with all the pressure they had, that was my one critique was that the Detroit Lions were going to get into a moment that was too big for them. Uh, that wasn't the case, right? The Detroit Lions were a team that from start to finish played well in all three phases and they didn't let the moment get to them. I mean, that's a big moment. Everybody all week talking about their first playoff game since this, their first home playoff game since that Michigan winning the national championship. What a great weekend for Michigan, all this stuff. The lions had a lot of pressure on them. I thought Dan Campbell was going to flounder. In fact, Dan Campbell showed why he belonged. Um, in 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 this in this uh what's the word I'm looking for? Why he belonged in this spot and why all along, you know, it what goes around comes around. And Dallas benefited from that fluky win, right? And then you look around and now Dallas being the two seed, it didn't really matter. Detroit got that home game in the divisional round anyway. Detroit's the second highest seed. They go into they go in with a lot of momentum. I apologize. There's a siren in the background. Uh, um, you know, usually we don't run into that in the woods here in Maine. Um, hope everyone's all right. But as I was saying, usually, you know, the the two seed wins and the three seed, you know, will go. In fact, this is the first time where the two seed has lost in the expanded playoff. Um, and I've always been a, I've always been a critic of the 17 playoff partially because honestly, for all those years, the Patriots benefited from being the two and getting that by, I'm not going to pretend that's not true. Um, and I, I think there should be two teams that get buys. Um, I still think that, uh, eventually that means they're going to expand it to eight, but as it relates to Dallas and Detroit, look, Dallas lost their game. They might have won that fluky regular season game, but when push came to shove, Green Bay went in, beat Dallas on the road as a seven, and Detroit took care of business at home as a three. And so therefore, you now have a situation where Detroit gets a home game at the end of the day anyway. And so what goes around comes around in these situations. And similarly, when it comes to 
Green Bay, look, the divisional division rival, they might end up going to Detroit again. You never know. I mean, they're going to go to San Francisco. San Francisco's going to have not really played a meaningful game in a while. And we'll get to the divisional round more in a second, but I wouldn't rule it out. I wouldn't rule out another Green Bay upset, not after what they did on Sunday. So it just goes to show you that seeding matters, right? But in this expanded playoff where only one team gets a bye and everyone's everyone but one has to play a wildcard weekend, pretty much anything can happen because in the old playoff format, Dallas would have been waiting there for Detroit to come in and have that rematch. Now, you know, they don't get that home game simply because of that call with the uh, illegal uh, man downfield a few weeks ago. Now Dallas is out in round one and Detroit continues. So, Look, karma in the NFL is a thing. Trust me, I, I'm a Patriots fan, right? We saw all that uh, stuff with the Tyree catch and the curse catch and all this. And, you know, we get the Malcolm Butler interception and, you know, we get some offside luck in Kansas City once in a while. And next thing you know, you got six rings. The, the tuck rule of all tuck rules, right? I, I get it. There's a lot of luck and karma involved in the in the NFL playoffs. I, I do think there's some sort of spookiness that goes along with it um, in some way, shape or form, however you want to define it. Uh, but but really, with, with with the NFC now, we we might think we're able to predict what's happening, right? Because Will's picks have all been wrong, and then we're going into the next NFC game on Sun uh, on uh, on Monday evening. And just while we're on the topic of the AFC, before we switch back to Buffalo and Pittsburgh, you know Tampa Bay. I called it, you know, fire those cannons. The Buccaneers absolutely took a massive W out of their home stadium. To me, I hate it when the home team is disfavored in or not favored or whatever the correct Vegas term is in the uh, in the playoffs. I think that's dumb. I think most of the time when that happens, people end up with egg on their face. I, I saw it from a mile away. I might have gotten... Dallas wrong. I might have gotten Detroit wrong. I might have gotten uh, Houston wrong. All those other games. But I'm looking around in Tampa Bay as a home team against a struggling Philly team that had lost five out of six in the year, something like that. Wasn't playing their best football. They were pretenders all year long. We talked about the Miami Dolphins and their fake win against Dallas, who ended up being frauds. Well, in week one, my Patriots, we thought we were right on the doorstep there after a, you know, after a close loss against Philadelphia, or should I say fraudadelphia. Those guys are a bunch of frauds. I mean, they were never really a great football team. They were 10 and one through 11 games. I thought I was tricked by these guys. I thought they were going to be the number one seed. I thought they were going to be unstoppable and march their way to march their way to another Super Bowl berth. But instead, Nick Sirianni lost the locker room. Jalen Hurts forgot how to play football. He gets the safety from the 13-yard line. And meanwhile, the Buccaneers don't take anything away from Tampa Bay. Baker Mayfield has been left aside. You think the Rams could have used the playoff performance from Baker Mayfield the other day? Hell yeah. Do you think the uh, Cleveland Browns could have used a performance like Baker Mayfield had in Tampa the other day when they lost to Houston? Absolutely. So both teams that Baker was sort of let go by lose. 
Meanwhile, Baker goes out there. He's, you know, an underdog at home, a home dog in the wildcard weekend. I'll take that any day, especially against Philadelphia. Those guys absolutely were playing with fire, and it came back to bite him. Baker, three touchdowns, three something, 300 something yards. The dude was balling. He found open receiver after open receiver. He made good throws. He made quick throws. And I've never been a Baker Mayfield believer. I think he's certainly pretty good. He was drafted number one overall for a reason. But just think about these these guys now left in these in these games. And you know, I maybe let's let's pin that thought for just for a second there and talk about the other game. Buffalo taking care of business at home against Pittsburgh. There's not really much to dissect there. You know, Pittsburgh always had a puncher's chance, right? Like they were never really out of it. Um, but just Josh Allen played on a different level. I mean, that big yard, long yardage run for a touchdown. Say what you want about the fake slide. I mean, that's Josh Allen playing football for you. I mean, that's just who he is. He's going to give you the superhero play. He might get throw you a, you know, villain interception. But, you know, more often than not, Allen's going to, those guys are going to hang in, even in a bad game. So, just look around at what the Bills were able to do late in the year, winning that division. Another pick that I got right, actually. Um, but 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 what's going to happen now as we go into these matchups, and the, this is where I'll pick up where I left off with Baker and the Bucks. is look at these divisional matchups. I'll give my picks in a moment. But look, just look at the matchups for a second. You have Baker Mayfield, former number one overall pick in 2018, going on the road to face Jared Goff, a number one overall pick in 2016. Both of those guys were cast off by the teams that drafted them. Those teams went on to pick other people, right? Um, both decisions were completely uh, unrelated, of course, where the the Rams decide that they want to move on and they want to get Matt Stafford. All right, Matt Stafford wins them the Super Bowl in 2022. That's great. Meanwhile, the Browns, they decide they want Deshaun Watson. So far, I think Deshaun Watson's probably played in about eight games for the Browns so far. I haven't looked that up. Deshaun Watson, everything we've talked about off the field on this program, he's been a train wreck. All right, so now look where the Browns are. Losing to Houston after trading picks to Houston to get Deshaun Watson. Now they get to stay at home, watch Houston advance, and they get to watch Baker Mayfield play in the divisional round with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. That's amazing. So think about just that matchup in and of itself is the, the Lions get Jared Goff, who the Rams didn't believe in. And then the Rams at one point also had Baker Mayfield on their team. And they're at home, too, of course, watching those guys play each other. That's an amazing matchup. And then speaking of Houston, Houston gets to go play. Um, Houston gets to go play the Ravens, right? And the Ravens have won so many games this year that they're the number one overall seed. They get that bye. And Lamar Jackson, who took over for Joe Flacco, who the who the Houston Texans just beat now that he's a member of the Browns. So some of these quarterback cycle matchups are unbelievably entertaining. If you think about the web that we've weaved over the last five or six years with some of these quarterbacks. But, you know, 
that's just two matchups. Then you move on and you get Mahomes and Allen again. And finally, Mahomes has to play a road playoff game in Buffalo. And Josh Allen, his excuse time with the Kansas City Chiefs is running thin, right? Like he's been bailed out a couple times. The Chiefs, the only reason this game is being played in Buffalo is because of that stupid offside you know, drama that I talked about. And look, that's the right call. We've now reversed engineered the NFL, as I said at the time, where we're mad where the correct call is made. But, you know, I so I shouldn't really say it's the only reason. But we have that drama and intrigue with those two teams who have had so many entertaining matchups over the last four or five years. But now, finally, that playoff game gets to be in Buffalo. And then the last game I'd point to is you get the Packers, Jordan Love, something to prove, taking over for Aaron Rodgers. How many times has Aaron Rodgers gone to San Francisco and lost in the playoffs? A handful of times. I can count at least two off the top of my head. I believe it was 2011 and 2019. So now Jordan Love takes over for Aaron Rodgers in Green Bay. He now has a chance to go to San Francisco and do something that I don't think Rodgers did in his career uh, in the playoffs with, with Green Bay. Uh, to my knowledge. So all kinds of amazing matchups all over the place. And it it really does add to some intrigue. Um, As far as my picks, CJ Stroud, I think he's playing really well. He, he had three first half touchdowns against Cleveland and that defense was pretty good. Um, But I, I still, I think I'd like the Ravens in this game. They're home. They will be a little rusty. Um, but I think when push comes to shove, I think Baltimore will get the job done at home. Um, elsewhere in the AFC, I think Kansas City wins. I think they do. Um, I, I don't really have a reason. I just have the sort of this inkling that the Chiefs are going to do what the Chiefs usually do. Uh, and that's win close games. I had this inkling last year and it led them all the way to the Super and that led all the way to them winning the Super Bowl again. So I, I like the Chiefs and the Ravens. All right. I think we get a Lamar and we get a Patrick Mahomes matchup in the AFC title game. Over in the NFC. I like I like San Francisco to win. Um, but as I mentioned several minutes ago, this is the game I have on upset alert, huge upset alert. I saw something funny earlier this week, um, about teams that had lost to Kirk Cousins in the regular season have never reached the Super Bowl, uh, which I thought was interesting. And I'm going to pull it up just so that I remember the score. But I'm quite certain that the San Francisco 49ers lost to the Minnesota Vikings this year. So at some point here, something's got to give. I'm just going to pull this up. But, you know, I'm not a big believer in these things per se. Um, But the Vikings did win on October 23rd, 22-17. So... These things are usually just coincidence, but hey, I think if you were going to put an upset alert on this game, I would certainly do it. Um, 
I'm not calling Green Bay to win, but I wouldn't rule it out. That said, I think I do think San Francisco wins the game. Now, here's where I'm going to stick to my guns, or should I say cannons? I think I think the Buccaneers are going to go spoil the party in Detroit. Um, I, I might as well just ride with them. They've played really well. Uh, they look good. Uh, it was actually funny. Somebody asked Todd Bowles if the Buccaneers were going to be preparing for cold weather in Detroit, not knowing or not understanding that Detroit plays in a dome. I think Todd Bowles did a good job answering that question with uh, respect. <laughs> uh, but that is a factor. You have a warm weather team. This isn't a Miami Dolphins going to Kansas City kind of situation. You have a warm weather team going to play in a dome. I think that suits Tampa Bay. After watching that game Monday night, I think that suits how they play. I think they play hard and fast, and I think they play you know quick and loose with the ball in the air. And Baker is going to go in there. He's going to chuck the ball all over the yard. The question is, can that defense be opportunistic again, like it was against Philadelphia? You know, they got that defensive score with the safety. They got some huge third down stops throughout that game to keep, you know, to keep the Eagles at distance. Can Tampa do that again? I think they can. So that's my upset of the week because I think they're going to go in there as a four against a three. And I think they're going to win. All right, so just to recap, I have Ravens, I have 49ers, I have Buccaneers, and I have Chiefs. That's who I have going into the final uh, four next weekend. It will be quite a weekend of football. I could very well be wrong. Uh, I started out, I think, one in three in my wildcard weekend picks. I ended three and three. I'm hoping to at least go two and two. I have some... I have room for there to be an upset. I've also called an upset. So that's a pretty risky bet, but we'll see. All right. Okay. Speaking of risky bets, before I move on from the NFL completely, the Patriots have decided to hire Gerard Mayo as their head coach. I think it's a good hire. Don't get me wrong. I'm excited to have him as my head coach. I loved him when he played here. He was a great player. He was a great leader. I think it's going to be awesome. Here's where it's risky, though. You didn't interview anybody else. He had it written into his contract, supposedly, that he would get the job after Belichick leaped. There's probably still people in that building that have some sort of loyalty to Bill Belichick, and a lot of people have respect for Bill Belichick. I'm wondering, including Mayo himself, of course, I'm wondering how many people in the building knew about that clause. I'm also wondering how many people in the building were expecting the Patriots to interview somebody else or how many people just knew it was going to be given to Mayo. Now, let me be clear. I think Mayo deserves the job. I don't think it's given to him in the way that there was nepotism involved. I just think that ultimately the job was grant, had to be granted to somebody and they chose apparently months ago to have it in place where it's been you know, bestowed upon Gerard Mayo as the heir apparent to Bill Belichick. Sounds like something that would have happened in the Roman Empire in, you know, the third century. But alas, here we are. I, I think with this situation, it's risky because of the ass assumptions that can be made. 
about what what staff is he going to bring in? Is he is am I going to stay on? Am I going to leave? Is you know who who from this we we know Cam Accord's leaving, thank God. Bill O'Brien looks to be leaving, but from the defensive staff, that defense looked pretty good. How many of those defensive coaches are Belichick guys? We know a couple of them have the last name Belichick. How many of those coaches are Mayo guys and want to stick with Gerard Mayo? So how similar is this coaching staff going to look or how different is it going to look? The question is, and the answer is, we don't actually know. It could look completely different. It could look largely the same. What, what, who's the offensive coordinator going to be? Is Mayo going to hire somebody with Patriot ties? Is Kraft going to push that on Mayo, knowing that you know the Krafts gave Mayo this job, and does he owe them something? Does he owe them to hire another former Belichick assistant to be on the office offensive side of the ball? All these personnel questions, I think, is why it's risky because there's going to be assumptions made by the media, by fans, and by other people in the building, and by people in league and team circles that it's sort of like a half-assed rebuild of the coaching staff. Sure, we want to move on from Bill. We want a fresh start, but we want to keep somebody who's been here, who in fact coached under Bill and was drafted by Bill. So that that's where I'm a little bit squirrely with the Gerard Mayo hiring is like, look, I like the dude. I think he's got all the intangibles and he's deserving of the job. No question about it. But I would have hired Mayo because I think he's the best guy for the job, not because... He worked under Bill or because we didn't want him to go uh, somewhere else. Um, I, I am just a little bit worried that, and look, I didn't watch the press conference today, so maybe I'll go back and watch that. And my mind will be changed. I'm just a little bit concerned about the, the, the long-term, uh, the long-term viability of his, of his job here. If if the personnel cannot be ironclad because we saw what happened to the Patriots offense. The minute there was not somebody named Josh McDaniels, Charlie Weiss or Bill O'Brien 1.0 involved, or maybe let me rephrase that the second there wasn't somebody named Tom Brady involved. So this offensive hire is really important. And I'm just wondering like, Again, I didn't watch the press conference today, so maybe I should go back and do that. I'm just wondering the risk involved with bringing in a guy who's or hiring a guy who's you're not bringing him in. He's been here, but hiring a guy who's never been a head coach before and never had to fill this staff in this way with this much turmoil. Sure, of course, he's probably up for the job. And there have been other guys in his position who have never coached before, who have put together at a, in the head in the head role that have put together great staffs. Look at McVeigh in uh, in Los Angeles. Look at guys like uh, uh, it. Although it pains me to say, uh, Harry Potter down there in Miami, he seems to have put together a pretty good staff. Um, you know, look at. Um, Kevin O'Connell and Bill Belichick draftee who worked for McVay, who is now in Minnesota with Brian Flores, put together a good staff up there. Um, you know, it, it happens with first time head coaches, but with this much pressure and personnel complexity, I just hope we're not setting Gerard Mayo, who has a ton of potential and is a really bright guy up to fail the same way we've set so many other coaches 
up to fail here and afterward because of the responsibilities they've been given and or the responsibilities that they haven't been given. So that's my only concern about the Mayo hiring and why I think it's somewhat risky. That being said, it, it's still not the most dysfunctional um, management situation in Boston sports right now. Uh, and I'm not talking about Jim Montgomery or, uh, or Joe Missoula. Um, you know, and I'm not talking about Cam Neely or Brad Stevens either. I, I am, I am of the opinion now that the Red Sox owners are liars. Um, I actually, I listened to a podcast last night, I believe, uh, Coley, uh, Mick, um, he had this, has this take, it's a take I agree with. They've been lying to you. And finally, you're starting to see actual Red Sox officials acknowledge the lies. I think Craig Breslow has been held hostage, you know, obviously, figuratively speaking, by this ownership group. I think Craig Breslow took this job thinking he was taking a Theo Epstein type Red Sox GM role. I mean, hell, he worked under Theo Epstein and he was here at one point in 07 under Theo Epstein and he was here in 13 under Ben Charrington, who's an Epstein, uh, you know, protege. So he knows what that model looks like. That model looks like we draft and develop and we also go out and spend money. That's what he thought he was taking the job for. They have him held hostage over their Heim Bloom fantasies that they wanted Heim Bloom to be. But basically what they did is they they took a guy who played here who had street cred because he was a player. And they're basically handcuffing him the same way they handcuffed Heim Bloom. But unlike with Heim, we're not going to be as, and by we the fan base, we're not going to be as critical because Breslow played here and he's a player and he won here and you know, he's different. And so they basically are making are handcuffing him the same way they handcuffed Heim Bloom, except they're relying on the fact that we're going to miss that. Well, Breslow's having none of it because Breslow went in front of Pete Abe from the Globe and was basically saying, uh, you know, we're going to we're going to build out the farm system and rely on, you know, Teal and Roman Anthony and Marcelo Meyer, you know, to be the future of the club. Um, that's pretty stupid considering you have a cheap Tristan Cassius right now. You have a relatively cheap pitching staff um, and you have, you know, Raphael Devers under contract for like eight more years. Um, I'm, you know, so I'm not, I'm not quite sure why we're suddenly pivoting from Breslau is going to come here and develop a great pitching staff to, well, now we're going to wait around for our prospects who are, essentially all position players at this point. Like all the good ones are position players. Bayo has graduated. He's a big leaguer. Tanner Huck has graduated. He's a big leaguer. Cutter Crawford's a big leaguer. Josh Minkowski's a big leaguer. These guys aren't prospects anymore. All right. So, I mean, I look, people are, you know, we're thinking about Brian Mata or some of these other guys. Like I, I get it, but for all intents and purposes, their best prospects are all position players. Unless I'm just missing a guy. I haven't looked at the you know top ten list and you know since the season ended, really. Um, but but the, but they basically they have Craig Breslow hostage. He's standing there. He came in. He couldn't hire his own coach because for some reason they're still married to Alex Cora. Because at this point, he endeavors are the only thing tying you to when you used to be a relevant baseball club. 
they're they're attached to this low market, you know, small market, low budget team philosophy uh, without any strategy on how to implement it. We're just sort of throwing, you know, stuff against the wall and hoping that it sticks. And, and now, and now you're at a point where uh, Breslow is, he can't be a CBO because a chief baseball officer, whatever the hell that meant prior to 2019, I'd never heard that term to be a GM. We'll just put it that way. You have to have unilateral ability to make baseball decisions sometimes. Obviously, there are certain things that you go to ownership for, like huge contracts and whatnot. But basically, they give you a budget, you execute the budget, and no questions asked. Now it seems like everything is a budget move. Everything is a budget-conscious decision. Alex Verdugo left. You wanted to trade him to get something for him. All right, cool. You got Tyler O'Neill basically to replace him, albeit not in that trade, but Tyler O'Neill and Alex Verdugo are like two sides of the same coin, underachieving, somewhat still young outfielders. That's it. Your other big key acquisition was Lucas Giolito. Now, I like Lucas Giolito. I think that's in line with what Bredzel wanted to do, but... As I said recently with the sale trade, I won't get into that again. You basically swap them. And as Coley said, you're trading Giolito's consistency for sales upside. I would rather have sales upside. You know, because Giolito, as Coley pointed out again, if he's good, he's gone. So that's not a long-term solution. That's enough to sell to the low information fans that you made a big pitching move. Well, that big pitching move is only going to last a year if he's good. And look, I want him to be good. And then that doesn't really jive with your said philosophy, Craig, on growing your farm system. Because if you're growing your farm system, Kyle Teal and Marcelo Meyer and Roman Anthony aren't going to be everyday big leaguers till probably 2026 at the earliest. Lucas Giolito could be in Cleveland or Houston by then. So that's what I don't understand. And, and I don't actually blame Craig Breslow because I'm finally learning it. I'm finally learning that this is an ownership problem. Not a, wasn't really a Heim Bloom problem. Heim Bloom, I think, was just sort of small-minded and, or narrow-minded. Not small-minded. He's certainly a smart guy. I just think he was a little bit narrow-minded on on how to achieve things. I think the fact that the fact that Henry made it uh, worse by imposing this philosophy without a strategy on Heim certainly played into that. But with Craig Breslow, it's essentially the same thing, except they're relying on the fans to miss that, you know, miss the forest for the trees. Well, I can tell you, and I know you guys as my listeners will agree, we're not going to miss that. You know, they might be able to get the people that show up to Fenway once or twice a year to swing Sweet Caroline. They might get those guys to miss. But the people that bleed baseball, like a lot of my listeners, we're, we're we're not that dumb. And ultimately... Over the last five years, it's almost been four years exactly since the Mookie trade, but essentially since that World Series win, they've treated Red Sox fans like they're stupid. They try to tell you Mookie Betts didn't want to be here. For a second, I believed that. 
Mookie Betts would have been here if you had signed him to a you know gazillion dollar contract in like the spring of 18. Like a full two years before he hit free agency, or full three years before he hit free agency, before his MVP year. I mean, we all knew he was an MVP quality player. If you said, Mookie, dude, we're going to sign you to a like 12 year, like, I don't know, $360 million deal or whatever it would have been at the point, at that point, um, it would have been about 30 million a year. If you had done that before the 2018 season in that market, maybe give or take a couple $10 million to, or years to make it, you know, work and negotiate. He would have done that in a heartbeat, but you had been, you had been nickeling and diming Mookie Betts since he was in high school. There was no way they were going to do that. You know, so they, they tried to sell us that. They also tried to do the same thing with Xander. Look, totally pointed this out too. I'll point it out again. As I, and I said this a year and a half ago or a year ago, whenever it was, when, when Bogarts went to San Diego, of course, Xander was going to take that 11 million, 11 year, you know, $400 million deal, whatever the hell it was. Of course he was going to do that. Red Sox fans weren't asking the Red Sox to make that deal. I wanted the Red Sox to make a reasonable deal in the spring of 2022. You know what I mean? Like that's what should have happened. You know, so they treated you dumb there. They treated you like you were dumb with Mookie. With Benintendi, they tried to sell you on guys like Franchi Cordero as a replacement. That was laughable, right? They didn't really have a second. They haven't had a second base plan since Pedroia left, to be quite honest, um, because, you know, they, they tried to make Chavis happen. They tried to make certain guys there happen. They tried to make Christian Royal happen. I've talked about that for years at this point. You know, so they never really had a plan. They sort of caught lightning in a bottle in 2021, thought thought that would appease the fans for a little bit, and it did. It did. People were all on the Heim, the Bluminati. They were all out at, at me in 2021. But as, I, as I've learned with this Craig thing, I really don't blame him. He's a hostage. I joked with a friend. I said, blink twice if you can hear me, Craig. You know, after hearing those, hearing those comments, it's, he does not want to do this. I don't think he's narrow-minded like Heim. I think Heim sort of wanted to play by these rules. I think Heim was like interested in the building from the ground up sort of model. And he didn't really want to look elsewhere. Even if Henry had allowed him to, I just don't think Heim was really interested in that. That's not how he wanted to run his baseball team. He wanted to sort of like be the field general, you know, with scouting on the ground and all this stuff, which is fine. It works. It worked in Tampa, but they've never won anything. I think what, what Craig wants to do is Craig learned from Theo. He learned from Ben Charrington. He's learned he's learned from organizations that want to win. The Cubs, they take big swings. Sometimes they fall on their ass. Other times they win World Series like they did in 2016, granted for the first time in over a century. I digress. I, I just I worry about the Red Sox going forward because I think they're content with being a small market team. And by they, I think the owners, and I think the owners know that the Red Sox are a cash cow for Fenway Sports Group and no longer the focal point of the organization. And look, people are going to yell at me and say they're all separate businesses and yada, yada, yada. Um, if I'm a franchisee at a restaurant, okay? Or if I'm a franchiser, excuse me. If I'm McDonald's corporate, okay? And I go and buy a small regional burger chain 
And then I am a multinational corporation. I, I buy a small burger chain and I start devoting all my resources to that. And I leave all my franchisees in the dust with no guidance. Those franchisees are going to fail and because they're not going to have the resources. The same thing. Fenway Sports Group can tell you that it's a separate business, that Liverpool or that, you know, the Penguins or whatever are a separate business. They can tell you that. Everybody knows that money at the top is money at the top. And if your focus and your resources are going toward one place and you're not putting resources into another thing, it's fair to ask what your priorities are. And I think Fenway Sports Group should focus on the team that occupies Fenway. I've said that for a long time. They could sell high on Liverpool to some Saudi Arabian dude and you know everybody in England could have a hissy fit over it. But Red Sox fans would stand there and say, great, I'm glad. You know, they, they, they can pay Mo Salah. They can't pay Mookie Betts. Not sure how that's going to work. All right. On that note, I hope, I hope I'm wrong about the Red Sox. I hope I'm right about my football picks, though. But uh, that's going to do it for this episode. Before I go, though, uh, you can probably tell by the, the shirt I'm wearing. Um, it's not a shirt I've worn before if you're watching on YouTube. Um, my uncle passed away on Monday. Uh, he was a huge tennis guy. Um, you know, I I like tennis. I don't know a lot about tennis, but he was a huge tennis guy. That's what a lot of people are going to say about him. Um, he was also just obviously a great, you know, a great um, great man in 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 particular. Um, and he, you know, he helped get me into baseball and so many other things. Um, but the point about tennis and my uncle is that when, when someone's life is almost not defined, but told against the backdrop of a sport, to me, that says that all those people that say sports are just a game, sports are just an activity. They're not an activity for my uncle. It was a vehicle to mentor hundreds of kids across the state of Maine. For him, it was a vehicle to stay active into his later years. And for him, it was a vehicle to make connections with other humans, including his own brother, who's his own twin brother, who's also a great tennis guy. To me, that's the power of sports. Sports is fun. You know, it's fun to talk about the wildcard weekend or what I would do if I was GM of the Red Sox. But sports are a vehicle for people to connect with one another. They're a way for people to communicate in a fun environment. Golf is a great example. Tennis is a great example. You know, I play baseball and I, I have a chance to, you know, mentor and coach kids sometimes. Like, that's a great privilege to be around sports at the recreational level. So as fun as it is to talk about, you know, all these big professional things, I you know, the college football playoff and all this stuff, you know, my uncle was a reminder that sports can be a vehicle for people to connect with one another, to mentor one another, and to pass on your love of a game to the next generation. There are probably dozens of tennis players across the state, probably the region if they went to college somewhere else, that will be able to point back to him or his brother and say that those are um, that those are the 
reasons why they play sports or the why they played tennis. That was that's what I had said about some of my baseball coaches, um, and and I'm I'm absolutely certain that they can say that about them. So anytime someone tells you that sports are just a game or sports are just an activity, no, it's much more than that. And and I think uh, my uncle was certainly a testament to that. Um, and you know I'm pr- I'm proud to be a part of uh, a part of that family. Um, so. Thank you. Thank you for listening to that. Um, and uh, before, before I get too emotional, I, I, think I'll, I think I'll wrap it up for tonight. I, I appreciate you all. hope you all have a great rest of your week. We'll be back next week um, to recap of the divisional weekend, um, talk more, uh, hopefully about hockey. Hopefully I can get Diesel on and we can talk about the hockey and I look forward to that. Um, but until next time, my name is Will Island, and you've been listening and watching Home Field Advantage. Thank you. If you liked this podcast, please subscribe on your favorite provider, including Spotify, Apple, Google, and Stitcher. Be sure to also check us out two times a week on those platforms, on Monday and on Thursday. All of the Sportland USA programs are independent, and the opinions expressed in them do not reflect those of any other company, outlet, person, or entity. Oh